before we get to today's episode, I've got a quick program note. So next week on the podcast, we are going to do a live taping, a series of actually episodes from the ASU GSV Summit in San Diego. And we're going to stream them live. So if you're not going to this event or don't even know what it is, um, doesn't matter. You can tune in on Monday and Tuesday. This is April 8th and 9th from 1 o'clock Pacific time to 3.30 Pacific time. The topic is looking at how the higher ed landscape is changing. And we're going to hit plenty of timely issues. We're going to be talking about the president of the college board. I'm going to sit down with him to talk about what that group's doing in the wake of the college admissions scandal. Um, we're going to talk pros and cons of algorithms um, in education with an AI expert. Sydney Johnson, our co-host, is doing that one. And we got we got a whole lineup. You can see the uh, list of guests and RSVP to tune in at bit.ly slash ASUGSV19. That's bit.ly slash ASUGSV19. And uh, I will say that live webcast is going to be possible thanks to a partnership we're doing with Shindig. And we hope to see you next week. Okay, now back to this week's episode. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Jeff Young, an editor and reporter here at EdSurge. So, okay, I don't think we have to tell this audience that writing is, is pretty important, more important than ever. But apparently today's students are, are lousy at it by a lot of measures. And John Warner has some ideas about why that is, and about how to fix it. Warner has been teaching writing at colleges for more than 20 years, and he's written actually two books on the topic, including his most recent, called Why They Can't Write. So part of the problem, actually, he says, is technology. And in in some cases, it's the very technologies that were intended to fix writing, like automatic essay grading software. And I should stress, though, that John Warner is not an anti-tech type person. In fact, for years, he edited one of the most popular humor magazines on the internet, McSweeney's Internet Tendency. It's kind of a more literary version of The Onion. And he he thinks the writing that students do for their Instagram accounts or their social media accounts are are actually great. And so, in a way, students are are writing. The problem is what they're doing in schools and and classrooms, like those five-paragraph essays, which emphasize following arbitrary rules instead of kind of finding the best way to express and communicate your ideas. And he's got some solutions to, to help make things better. It, so I got to talk with John Warner recently, and, and I have to admit, this was a real treat for me. I definitely could relate. Um, I've been doing this writing thing for a while myself, and, and I've taught journalism classes as an adjunct. But I was still surprised by, by some of his ideas, like why Fitbits, he thinks, are a problem and, and part of this crisis in writing. Here are some highlights from that conversation. All right, I'm pleased today to be talking with John Warner, um, who is, uh, I guess, are you joining me from your home office today? Where are we finding I, you? I am. I'm in my home office in uh, Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. I feel like I have to ask you about your, um, this book, Why Can't They Write? Um, mm-hmm. And it's one that, I, I mean, it's definitely one of those things you hear professors kind of grumbling sometimes. But I, I was interested because it seems like, what one of the things that struck me in in looking through the book was that the students themselves have a different give themselves a different grade about writing. They they think they're good at it. Well, Can you talk about that disconnect or what you what you see when you get you know you've been teaching for so long writing, but you're you're seeing students in the classroom and and it sounds like they they have a different attitude than about their own writing. 
Yeah, there's, there's, there is this sort of disconnect. In a lot of cases, um, they may have gotten good grades on the kinds of writing they've been asked to do either uh, in school or, or like a standardized assessment. And they're doing well. But when you dig underneath it, they actually have a lot of um, insecurities about their writing. They don't know if they're good writers. They know if they've performed well on what I call in the book, writing related simulations, which is mostly what I think they're asked to do in school, which is to sort of prove that they can demonstrate for the purposes of these assessments, um, a limited set of moves that make it kind of look like you sort of know how to write. It's so interesting. Uh, it's like, it's like acting. You're almost like, there's like acting like writers, like the way writers should be. That's exactly it. In, in the book, I, I say the equivalent would be if we, taught uh, in, in like an acting class, if we taught exclusively through um, asking students to do specific imitations of uh, actors in specific roles. So sure. like we would have like De Niro 101 or Streep 413, and they wouldn't even be acting like them. They would just be imitating a particular performance. Yeah, like a good grade would be like nailing De Niro. That's exactly right. I'm not like, going to try right now, although if right. you want to, go ahead. No, no, no. I'm no impressionist, but uh, it, it's, it's, um, it, it comes from this sort of highly prescriptive practice that's privileged because they're going to be assessed on a very narrow um, range of, of, of abilities, which is why, you know, the subtitle is killing the five paragraph essay and other necessities. The five paragraph essay is is more avatar um, and symptom than than direct cause, but a lot of my students arrive having written exclusively five paragraph essays, and um, you know even beyond essays or five paragraphs, they've been told things like never use I, never write with contractions, every sentence must be between five and seven sentences. And then another student will argue and say, no, 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 it's seven to nine sentences. That's what I was told. That's, that's where you're, yeah, that's where you're digging in. Yeah, yeah. never start with the, with but, right? Is right, you, and you never, and, never, uh, never. can't start with but, and every final paragraph has to start with in conclusion and repeat the, the previous paragraph uh, main ideas. And so they come with this sort of programming that has often been validated by the sorts of assessments uh, that are tied to their high school performance. But then they get to college, a first year writing class, like I, I've spent many years teaching, and I pull the rug out from under them and say, every piece of writing is a custom job. There are no rules. We have to think through these problems. And they feel um, bummed or betrayed or frustrated that, um, I've changed the game on them, that it, they, they understood the game and were doing well at the game and now the game is different. And what I'm saying is it's not a game. It's actually something substantive and real that we want to ask them to do. Yeah, I guess I, it, this, is, this is the hard one, right? It's like, other than read your book, what would you, what would you, have, <laughs> what would you have that, you know, how could you quickly summarize the, the way, instead of a paint by numbers approach, which in a way the five per, paragraph essay is in your telling, what, what, what should they be doing even before they get to you? Well, so a, a lot of that is enwrapped up in this other book, The Writer's Practice. I think they should be building their practice. And I define that as the skills, attitudes, knowledge, and habits of mind of writers. And we develop those things primarily by writing, um, writing to audiences, writing with purpose, writing uh, from things we are interested in or passionate about, 
um, writing about things we are interested in but don't know a lot about, which requires us to do research and uh, the sorts of things we want students doing. And a lot of it is based on my reflection of my experience learning to write as, as a young person sort of before the era of, of standardized assessments and accountability. Uh, I have my, for some reason, I have my fifth grade um, writing portfolio that my mom saved of, of every stupid thing she could save. That's what, what, what I have. And it's filled with just weird stuff. There's a limerick in there. There's um, speculative fiction. There's historical fiction. I had to do a writing assignment uh, where we invent something. And um, that required a kind of deep engagement with the problems of writing, that I have to describe this thing that doesn't exist. I have to convince my audience why it's worth um, why it's worth existing. I decided to invent a machine where uh, you plug into it and, and you learn school while you sleep so you don't have to go to school. <laughs> My teacher should have wanted to murder me for this, but it's that must have been fun to grade. Yeah, it's, uh, but she's she was great. She she's like, this is one of your best things of the year. We're going to put it in your portfolio. So some of it is having the freedom to to be a kid when you're a kid and express yourself in the things you're interested in and write for audiences. Uh, Don't you know? I I I definitely hear you, and I but unlike when we went to school, I mean, don't kids today actually write a lot? And they're even if they're just even if it's just a caption on their Instagram, aren't they constantly writing for an audience? They are, and that's part of it. In their lives, they're writing all the time, and that's one of the 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 connections I make once they get into a first year writing class is that students are writing more than ever. Not necessarily not necessarily for school. There's there's a lot of evidence that I cite in the book. Um, uh, the research of Appleby and, and Langer um, that shows that students in school aren't writing as much as, as we wish they would. So but that practice, they literally aren't practicing. Yeah, they're not practicing in school, but they're writing in the world all the time. And they're, they're doing the kinds of things that we ask of the writers practice all the time. They're thinking about audience. Uh, an example I'll use in first year writing, I'll say, um, you guys will text your parents that you're going out you guys will text your friends that are that you're going out. What is the difference between the message you text to your parents and the message you text to your friends? And they understand instantly they're tailoring a message to audience for radically different purposes. And uh, it's it's a relatively small matter to get them to start translating that in academic uh, or scholarly uh, contexts. Once you give them an audience, often they've not been writing for an audience. They've been writing for a, a teacher in the generic sense or an assessment, which really is entirely disembodied, where they're, they're following the moves because those are the moves that they know the, the um, invisible assessor is going to like. So as soon as I give them audience and purpose, they're often off and running. Uh, and and it's, it's not a difficult or painful switch at that point. Now, as you know, we talk a lot about technology here at, at Ed Surge, and I've covered that quite a bit. Um, and I, I saw you you talk about it in, in your book as well. Um, and I was curious, you mentioned that when it comes to innovators throughout kind of the history of education, like back to Thomas Edison, and more recently, people like Sebastian Thrun, um, the Stanford prof who started the MOOC company Udacity. Sometimes there's, a, you, you sort of argue that they're, the way they look at education has a, I think you call it a category problem. In a way, like the metaphor they're using is wrong. 
could you talk about that? Yeah, a, a lot of these things, and, and there's a quote from Edison, and all of those were compiled from um, Audrey Waters, the, the um, researcher, independent researcher who writes about technology. Um, they yeah. are often sort of Edison's quote about how the moving picture is going to replace the classroom. Uh, or, or um, the hype around MOOCs back when we still thought those were going to be innovative was about information, right? That information, if we can convey information more efficiently or dynamically even, uh, I remember, uh, um, I can't remember which, which MOOC um, CEO it was, but uh, he theorized, I, I reference it in the book, he theorized that if we could get Matt Damon to deliver lectures, that would be even better because he's Matt Damon, he's engaging, he's interesting. It would be much better than an old boring professor who actually knows what they're talking about. Delivery. Yeah, that was, oh, right, right. Uh, that was a non-Agarwal from, that's, from my team. Yeah. That's exactly right. So this idea that it's information delivery, I think is incorrect. And it's particularly incorrect for writing because there's, there's no information I can give students about writing that will help them write better. Uh, I, I'm, I am of the um, writing can't be taught, but it can be learned school of thought. I can create the conditions and experiences under which writing can be uh, engaged with uh, and challenges that are interesting and get students to want to do it more. But ultimately, that's going to happen with the student. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about your piece on uh, being John McPhee's student, and it, it's, a, it's a great example of that process. It's just he brings you into his world. This is how writers act, how they behave, how they think, what they do. And uh, it's great to be exposed to that, but ultimately you have to go put that into your practice. He, he cannot tell you things um, that are meaningful unless you're going to try to enact them. So I spend a lot of time just setting the terms of the, of the action. Here's what we're going to try to be doing. And here's the parameters under which I want us to do it. And I'm here to then provide um, a sounding board and feedback. And, and um, usually when students ask me questions, I answer with more questions than answers. But that, that force that will get you keep, to keep going in your practice, rather than saying, do this, do this, do this, do this, uh, it's easy to describe what a good piece of writing looks like. The process to produce that writing incredibly complicated, hugely variable, depending on who's doing it and why they're doing it and what they're doing, which I love. I mean, that's the fascinating part of the job for me. That's, that's why I love teaching writing. But it does not lend itself to prescription, and it particularly is not something where the kinds of technologies that are, are injecting themselves into the space are, are not helpful. Um, yeah, I, I definitely want to get back to that in a second, but is, that's a good the time to ask about, you mentioned automated grading, for instance, with writing, and that there are some essay grading software out there already, and I think there's a lot of, I think there's, people see it as this way technology can really move the needle, right, and do the thing, make things more efficient, and, and the cost of education is so high, so we'll we'll bring in this, and it'll save time, and professors might like something that saves them time to, to and give source quickly, so what's, so what's not to like about this idea of automated grading? Well, so the big problem is efficiency is not a value when it comes to learning to write. Learning to write is a process that requires failure, 
that requires uh, trying things over again, that requires, um, it, I believe, kind of taking like a big swing and missing. Uh, and a lot of that has to happen internally to um, the, the writer themselves. They, have, they ultimately have to be kind of intrinsically driven, I think. Um, so when these algorithms intervene, so when an algorithm that can really only score an essay, right, that can give a four or five or a 85, that feedback by itself is, is not helpful. Uh, one of the, the talking points to give, like, well, it gives instant feedback. It gives students feedback in the process. Instant feedback can be horrible for a piece of writing. It can be much, much better to let the writer sit with having written hmm. for a period of time to let that filter through. I'm sure you've, any writer has experienced this, where you wrote a draft of something, you let it sit there, you went and did something else, maybe you went to sleep or you walked the dog or you took a shower or you did your yoga or whatever your thing is, and you came back to it and you look at it again and something that was stuck in your craw, all of a sudden you have a solution for it. And that was your brain still working on it subconsciously or, or, or possibly, but writing is not a, you write and you get feedback and you do it again. You write and you get feedback and you do it again. You write and you get feedback. That's not how a writer develops their, their practice. So speed is not particularly a value. Efficiency is not a value. Scoring by itself is meaningless. Uh, and and uh, as I, I say in the book, um, if I'm teaching writing, and I'm outsourcing the reading of my students' work to an algorithm. That's like a, a football coach who's trying to work with their players and knows the score but has not watched the game. It simply doesn't make any sense. A huge part of the job of a writing teacher is reading their students' writing and uh, diagnosing what may be going on in the process that is dysfunctional that they can help them with. And so knowing the score doesn't help me. Even having an algorithm that could break down and flag issues, that doesn't help me. Because um, even the same issue could be have different uh, origins. A student could get a paraphrase wrong, and it could be they had a problem reading the source. It could be that they were bored by the source and didn't like it. It could be uh, that they think they're trying to say something other than what the source is saying. So they're trying to bend the source to their will, which happens sometimes, right? They'll, they'll purposefully kind of misparaphrase because they're trying to make point. If I don't read it and I don't know that student, I don't know how to intervene to help them. And so the, the, uh, all of that algorithmic stuff, I understand why it's being created because we have too many students because efficiency has become a, a, a big issue, but um, it's not helping. And I would argue it's hurting. Um, I would, I would, if I was czar of teaching writing, I would, I would stop development of all these things immediately. Uh, now I would have to simultaneously change the conditions under which most writing teachers work, but, um, but you'd be czar. So there you but, go. But I'd be czar. So I could do that too. Uh, so I, yeah, I am, I am about as strongly against these interventions as you could get, uh, as a, as a teacher of writing, not anti-technology in general. I think there's things that stuff can help with in, in writing, particularly in, in giving student access, students access to audiences. But um, the, the algorithmic grading and feedback, just it's, it, it doesn't even make sense to me. I don't even understand how it could be useful.
you know, I also appreciated that you you mentioned that there are other technologies that um, that shape that kind of contribute to this bad writing um, epidemic out there uh, in the student world, which is, but some of these are not even educational technologies. Like you mentioned, how Fitbits are part of the problem. Well, I mean, you uh, know what I mean. In, in, in a way, Fitbits as a <laughs> Fitbits as a um, a kind of experience of of quantification and surveillance. Um, like how it's kind of it's brought to us a world in which it is, it's expected that we'll be just tracking our yeah we'll be tracked we'll be track. monitored and uh, you know this is this is part of um, both the problem of atmosphere as I write about in the book and and the problem of surveillance essentially how surveillance ruins the atmosphere for writing and learning in general I think uh, I talk about an app called Class Dojo that um, I think is doing potentially doing great harm to students um, because it's, it's making them hyper aware of them being watched in school and that their performance is being watched. And the class portals where you're, they're getting their grades, notifications for their grades in real time. Um, a huge part of learning to write is failing, is trying to do something and not succeeding at it. Writing that bad joke. Writing that bad joke. Writing, uh, in my case, you know, like writing um, three novels that were unpublishable before writing a novel that was publishable. And uh, the publishable one would not have existed without without the others. And the only way I was able to do that was nobody's ever going to see those three novels that didn't get published. I could, I could um, stay in a um, emotionally safe place that allows me to take risks. And so part of what I think we need to do is incentivize some measure of, of um, failure. Now, failure in service of, of a worthy task, failure sometimes measured not as, oh, wow, that is horrible, but that fell short of my lofty goals for it, like writing a novel, hoping it gets published, and it not being published, um, each of those failures is not bad. Uh, you know, some people read them and say that's pretty good, but they they don't re they didn't reach the threshold I was I was wishing for them. We can do the same thing for students, but a lot of that is is making sure they have challenges that they want to try to succeed on. Now, if if they're excited by it and they're swinging for the fences they may fall short or they may bite off more they can chew than they can chew, but that's going to lead them to learn much more than keeping them safe. Uh, I, I say this in, in both why they can't write in the writer's practice, proficiency and competency are far too low a bar for students to learn to write. If we settle for proficiency, they will never become proficient. And man, I wish I had an answer. I mean, a, a lot of it really is. Um, you have a great TED talk if you had an answer, dude. Yeah. Well, so my TED talk would be very short, and it would be fund public higher education. Uh, I, I think there is. <laughs> Has there ever been a forward TED talk? <laughs> I don't know. That'd be interesting. Uh, it's it's um, it really is. You know, with this, we're talking in the immediate aftermath of this admissions scandal, and right, right, re revealing kind of the corruption. Um, endemic to these elite spaces. Meanwhile, uh, a place like College of Charleston, where, where I, I've worked and I'll, I'll be teaching in the fall, um, has a 75% acceptance rate. Um, it's an excellent school in terms of the quality of education you're going to get. We, we, we 
everybody knows the quality of education has very little to do with the prestige of the school, even with the acceptance rate. Uh, so we don't, but at the same time, it's a public institution that is largely strapped by not having enough funds. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think the state of South Carolina contributes something around 8% of the uh, bottom line to College of Charleston. And this, this is utterly typical. This is, this is not unique to South Carolina or, or, or CFC. Uh, if, if we want to have places where everybody can go, we have to make them places that are supported and have the resources that make that experience worthwhile. And we're, we're, we haven't been doing it. It's been a, a good 30, 40, 45 year um, devolution of, of these public spaces. And um, we're starting to recognize the price, I think. I think that's what's turning is we see like, oh, we're not finding our way out of these problems. These problems are wicked. What are we going to do? What kind of wicked solution do we have to, to solve these wicked problems? Well, I look forward to your TED Talk. And we, we, <laughs> we've got over time, but it's, it's been such a pleasure. And thank you for, for um, being on the podcast. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. Once again, if, if you like the show and, and want to see uh, taping in person, we're going to be at ASU GSV in San Diego April 8th and 9th. That's next Monday and Tuesday. So check out details at bit.ly slash ASUGSV19. Once again, bit.ly at ASUGSV19. And of course, you can subscribe and hear past episodes of this podcast um, on Apple Podcast app on your phone or, or the Android version or wherever you get your podcasts, Stitcher or Spotify. Um, just, just check us out. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of learning. Thanks for listening.